Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast. This is Kelly Birmingham. You're listening to our retrospective look across the autism spectrum. Talking about me, Kelly, and my 25 year career working and supporting adults and children with um, autism and on the develop and with development disabilities. And I'm here with my partner in crime, Jen Lucero, mom to Dylan and Ethan. Hi, Jen. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> wow, we are closing out our month talking about sexuality and puberty with an amazing person. Every, all roads pointed to Nicholas. So we're super <laughs> excited to have him on our podcast. This is Nicholas My, Mayo Ather. Close. Close. Nicholas Mayo Ather. Mayo Ather. I tried to write that right. So Nicholas is the founder um, and owner of Empowered, a center for sexuality. We've, we've got a chance to talk to him before we start recording and man, oh man, is he fascinating. <laughs> Nicholas, tell us a little bit about how you found your way from the field of ABA to the field of and starting your own company around sexuality. Certainly. Um, so getting started in ABA, I think something that any, any wise practicum student would do and any wise supervisor would be to play to the practicum student's strengths. Um, and so uh, my history being in sexuality from the time that I was 17 uh, really made sense that that would be an area that I would build on. Um, something that I think is no secret in, uh, in, in common culture when it comes to acknowledging ABA is that this field has not focused on sexuality much at all. Um, going into it, I, I saw the way that um, practitioners without sexuality knowledge were trying to address sexuality, and it wasn't really, for lack of a better word, empowering. Um, that was a big part of why we chose Empowered uh, as a, a forefront for the company name. Um, just really wanted to bring uh, a level of human connection and uh, understanding and recognition into ABA. And part of recognizing humans is recognizing their sexual selves. It's a big part of who we are. Absolutely. You know, I would love it if you'd share your sort of first experience as an ABA practitioner um, and just some of the things that made you question the work you happen to be doing back then. Okay. Um, so I would say something that I noticed right away before I was in practicum, this was when I was um, just around behavior analysis, um, uh, seeing clients who uh, they were expressing, um, I felt very appropriately uh, that they were upset, that they were horny, that they were uh, <laughs> attracted to somebody, that they were attracted to their staff, um, things yeah. of this nature. And instead of working with them to help them you know, figure out uh, what dating was and like how to find a partner. It was, that's inappropriate. You're not supposed to like your staff move on. Right. Um, you know, here's, here's a candy bar or here's Care Bears, like stop talking about sex. Um, and it's like, you know, they can like candy bars, Care Bears and still want to talk about sex. Like <laughs> just, <laughs> just because you redirect them over to this and try and infantilize the individual does not mean that their body isn't growing up. Um, and I think that witnessing um, what I would consider, you know, uh, unethical extinction, um, it drove me kind of crazy. Absolutely. Um, 
So I, I just had to move forward and bring consent to the forefront of everything that I do. Um, one of the main trainings that I offer right now for clinicians is an ethics training, three hours in sexuality. Um, just really, really big on the idea that humans are autonomous um, and that we can build somebody up in ways that make them feel good about their outcomes, their goals. Um, something that really stuck out to me when I was first reading the ethics code was that it says in there that clients are supposed to read over their plans and consent mm -hmm. to their plans. And I was not seeing that done in practice at all. Clients had no clue what was being done around them. Um, so like looking at those kinds of things, I was like, it's actually in our ethics code. Like, I, I think we should be emphasizing these things a little bit more. Um, so, you know, consent is something that it's, it's right there, but it's not acknowledged. Um, and that's a, a big area for me is just bringing, a, bringing an environment into the ABA field um, where like our clients can tell us to F off. And if that's what they want to tell us in that moment, I'm like, that's valid. Like, mm -hmm. thank you for telling me and not punching me because mm -hmm. I might have punched me if I felt that way. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just versus, you know, that's inappropriate. Like, mm -hmm. really, it's okay. They express their thoughts. They express their feelings. They're humans. So talk, talk a little bit more about um, unethical extinction in terms of sexuality. Yeah. So um, in, in my mind, if you're going to take something away, you need to put something in place. Mm -hmm. um, you can't ethically in my my interpretation of ethics and ethics are interpretable um, but if you're going to extinguish something you're, you're saying no to this behavior yeah if you don't provide an alternative what is that client to do this is why we have differential reinforcement um, and also it, it's not ethical if the client doesn't find what you're trying to differentially reinforce reinforcing Right. Right. If you're like, replace it with this skill and this skill also sucks, that client, <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, no wonder they're mad. No wonder they're punching the people in their mm -hmm. environment. They didn't choose this. This is not what they want in their mm -hmm. lives. So trying to extinguish something because we don't want the client to do it and not giving them something that they do want, like that's, that's just a timeout for their behavior. And to me, that's extinction that's done very unethically. I love it. And, and Jen, I, I can't wait to hear you on this topic and what I'm going to talk about as mom to Dylan, but you know, that comes up with masturbation a lot in sexual feelings. And so for example, um, lots of parents let their kids have private time, mm -hmm. but I don't know that the adolescents or adults know how to use that private time, meaning assuming that's your time you're going to go masturbate, right? But we don't always work through those steps to make sure that they're satisfied with that experience. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, Jen, you're a mom raising a boy. Mm -hmm. And so I just love us to just talk about that a little bit, because whenever I, I do bring this up to parents and say, well, how do you know that they're you know, one, are they completing masturbation, for example, and are they satisfied with it? Particularly like Jen, your son, Dylan, he can't tell you. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, um, you know, he, we have an understanding that he, you know, goes to his room um, and 
he, I, you know, from just the physical, like afterwards, like, you know, in his room or clean sheets, I believe he does come to completion. Um, he definitely, you know, he usually then goes and takes a shower and then changes his clothes and whatnot. Um, and comes out of the room, like he looks happy, but it's not anything, he's not much of a talker anyways. Um, so it's not anything we actually talk about, you know? Um, so it, it is always like, you know, strange and awkward. Like honestly, I wouldn't even wanna to talk to my, own, you know, my neurotypical son about it much either. Um, he has a girlfriend. I know a lot more of what's actually happening with him. You know, he's pretty open and honest with me and, you know, um, we've done a lot of talks. So, you know, I, you know, go with, you know, when he was younger, went with him to go buy condoms. We, you know, he asks me a lot of questions. I'm kind of surprised he would ask me, but yeah, my my son Dylan, that doesn't happen. One thing I find a little frustrating for me is that he's in a adult transition program to adulthood. He's been in it three years. He's going to be finishing in December and never once, even though probably a half of his time was supposed to be about life skills and development, have they ever discussed anything about sexuality and to me it's such an important topic especially since he is now going to be going into adult program and that's when I feel like that's really going to open up a lot of things one thing that you did um, mention that my son is definitely like loves his staff and um, you know he has crushes on his staff and he definitely expresses that and so you know, just when in your opinion, as far as, you know, is, do you think that that's something I should even push with the school district? Like he has all these self-help and self-skill goals, but not to say like it should be a natural goal, but it's like, it should be a topic of conversation as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's Ooh. a tricky one. I can't, <laughs> I can't ethically give uh, direct advice like that. Um, what I can say is that um, you can be a voice in your son's IEPs um, and you can advocate for what you think is necessary for his development and you can push for that. Um, if you need uh, resources regarding that, um, one area to look would be like seekus.org. Uh, that's S-I-E-C-U-S.org, um, Sexuality Information Education Council of the U.S. They determine sex ed standards um, and have a lot of the research for why uh, comprehensive sexuality education is helpful. Um, so that could be useful in any sort of discussion that you're having there. Um, and I think something that's really notable is like, even when they do sex ed um, and, and incorporate uh, uh, people with varied abilities into the uh, sex ed program, um, even the neurotypical kids are not understanding about half of what is being taught in sex ed. Wow. They're using cross sections that are horrifying. They're talking about, uh, I mean, it, it looks like someone's been cut in half and I don't want to see that, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're showing slides of STIs. 
they're talking mainly about the virtues of, uh, of why you should not have sex. Um, and kids don't want to hear that. So they shut down. Um, and when we consider that, like, even neurotypical kids are not getting much out of their sex ed, you give them the same sex ed to, to somebody who has a social challenge, that becomes even harder to understand. I had a young man a long time ago, um, he was 14 and he opted, you know, his family knew me. And so they were like, we're going to go the more sex positive approach and we're going to put him in sex ed. And I got a phone call after day one, it was a three day sex ed. And I got a phone call after day one and he's freaking out. He was so mad at me. <laughs> he was so <laughs> mad at me because I had been teaching him social skills that would be lined up with like dating etiquette. Mm -hmm. um, been helping him prepare for flirting and dating a girl. And he had learned in sex ed that day that all girls have chlamydia. And if you have sex with one before you're 18, you will die. Oh. Now wow. that's not what the teacher said, I'm well, sure, but that is what he got from it. Yeah. Um, and so like, just looking at, at all of these pieces, it's very, I think it is very important that educators not just spend three days addressing something that really it's integrated into almost every facet of our adulthood, right? Um, relationships, who are we going to date? Um, our social circles. Um, sometimes our political beliefs are influenced by our sexuality or gender, different things uh, that it just, it weaves its way into. Um, if we don't address those things and we have learners with social difficulties, they're not going to pick this up on their own necessarily. And that's, and we also don't know what they will and what they won't because everybody's different. And so if we don't come in comprehensively in ways that teach that are effective and meaningful, and that's the thing, it's got to be both effective and meaningful because if the learner shuts down, it doesn't matter how good your teaching method is. <laughs> uh, it's also got to be meaningful. Um, like I never start with STIs. Oh my goodness. Um, like <laughs> you don't start with that. Um, STIs, that's the last thing we address. Mm -hmm. um, and also like, that's a good final lesson before you go out on your own, you know? but Definitely. by then they've already learned all of the things. Yeah. Um, so if they want to shut down and think I'm a jerk because I taught them that very real lesson on STIs, at least I got everything else in first. Yeah. Um, and I actually haven't had any of those issues. Everybody's been pretty cool. Um, by the time we get to STIs, we've already addressed all of the other things. They feel pretty cool with me. So we're very real about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also don't show scary slides. Not a big fan. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to the masturbation topic. Um, so Jen it has observable signs that Dylan mm -hmm. is satisfied with that yes. experience. Um, but as a practitioner, I wonder that all the time. And I often hear parents who have shared with me that their children are trying different objects and items in that experience. And I I one time um, actually was asked to um, assess a 19-year-old man who um, wasn't potty trained yet. But what I found was that he was wearing a diaper. He would come home from his day program. He would have a he would um, have a bowel movement, and then want to keep that in his underwear while he masturbated, it was all tied together. And so the reason people, I think people hadn't been able to potty train him was because it was a whole experience and that we needed to take it from that angle. 
um, and you know that was shut down by the family. Mm-hmm. But it it took him a long time to do to masturbate, and he seemed to be very frustrated with the experience. And I mm-hmm. did feel that maybe he could benefit some some education and support around that. But am I crazy, Nicholas? Is that no? Um, so. Uh... The first, uh, and I call it solo sex, um, but the first solo okay. sex intervention that I did um, was uh, a young man who he was putting his penis into hot items. Yeah. Um, he had scalded himself um, and he was engaging in rape like behaviors towards his staff. Yeah. Um, and so, in working with him, um, and he had almost no vocal repertoire. Um, so working with him, there was a whole lot of care. Um, it was almost, uh, I want to say it was almost two months before we ever got into more in-depth instruction. Uh A lot of it was just trust, getting to know me, feeling cool about each other. Can I even address this topic? Um, but we started looking at, you know, different factors and we realized like this dude, he's, (laughs) he's sticking it in these things because he wants his penis in something. We know that. Yeah. Like he wants penis in something. He's going after other people. We don't know if the two are connected, but I think they really are. So we were looking at, you know, a variety of different behaviors as potential signs. Um, But something that we really catered to in in that intervention to help it be more effective and also to help him understand what's going on. We gave him an item to stick his penis into as yeah. part of his solo sex intervention. Yeah. And it was, um, it was a medical grade silicone item that like, we didn't have to worry about it getting nasty. Um, and we worked into his task analysis, cleaning up so mm-hmm. that um, he would, as in essence, by cleaning the item, he was also washing his hands because everything Beautiful. involves soap. So like, you know, got him very clean and, and good to come back out and be uh, out with the rest of the group. Something that, um, that we have been able to use in interventions is measuring permanent product by teaching clients to use wipes and throw them away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very easy to determine if it happened or did not happen to what some people call completion. I would call it to orgasm because some people don't seek an orgasm in their experiences. Um, you can have a well-rounded experience without an orgasm too. Um, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, especially for, uh, for people who have, um, uh, like, and I'm talking more in the neurotypical population, but people who have like anxiety or pressure in the, in the bedroom, a lot of it comes from the idea that it's got to lead to something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have flexible relational frames about mm-hmm. how we see sex, um, uh, sex becomes a lot less daunting. Um, oh, I but, love that. That was really well said. I'm going to quote you on that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, can I ask you, are you the person teaching the male or is it the parent teaching the male and you're guiding? Cause that so, comes up a lot. Yeah, no, ideally, uh, ideally it's the parent. Yeah. Ideally it's the parent. Um, right now I I'm training a dad, like, you know, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, you're going to do this with your son. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> let's learn these things. Here's, here's the curriculum. We're going to talk about these mm-hmm. things. Um, I use handmade love curriculum. Um, so, uh, I have like with the, the uh, one that I was just describing, um, that was direct instruction. Um, mm-hmm. And in doing that, now this is an area where I'm huge on ethics. Like I made a, a boo-boo, a no-no, like you don't do what I did my first time and thank the gods I was not yet <laughs> certified. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm like, phew, at least in my history since certified, I know I did not violate that. But something that I was not aware of um, was, you know, uh, looking at the elements of like really fine tuning into the idea of what is uh, an appropriate prompt level. Right. Exactly uh, where I'm headed with this. Right. Absolutely. And this is where I made a boo-boo and I, I, I will openly tell people yeah. my mistake <laughs> yeah. because please don't ever make that mistake. And, and I will assure you, I haven't since then. Yeah. Um, but I did gloves. Mm hmm my hand over his hand. I mm -hmm. knew not to grab his penis, <laughs> but I did my hand over his hand and helped him grab the base. That's a no-no. Don't ever do that. I made uh, that mistake. I made that mistake in 1995. Not me, but a male therapist doing the same thing in, in our first stab at this kind of work. Absolutely. I've made it. I wasn't certified yet either. There wasn't a BCB back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> BACB, yeah. It's one of those things where we look back and we go, you know, like if I hadn't done that, yeah. I probably wouldn't have moved forward and learned the things that I did at the same time. Like if I could go back and tell that client, like, I'm sorry if that yeah. made you uncomfortable or feel weird, I would love to. Yeah. Um, he didn't indicate that it did, but yep. still. Um, would you recommend a parent do that? And does I, it, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I, so I got creative over time uh -huh. and like, I have parents borrow a very base dong that doesn't look like anything, but they can teach grip. They can teach stroking they through, can, model. Uh, through model through model. Yep. Got it. And then if it's still not resonating that this is like a penis, yep. then we go, okay, hold on. We'll just use a strap on harness so that it can go exactly where it needs to go. And we can practice that way. Um, and if we need to, we use a more realistic looking one as well. Right. Um, but we try and use the least intrusive prompts. Wonderful. What do you think about that, Jen? <laughs> because it's, yeah, mom, I mean, it's often yeah. moms helping boys. Yeah. Four to one ratio. When mm -hmm. the, right? Yeah, that would definitely be helpful. It's interesting because my son like just, figured it out and just started doing it. I mean, there has been times, of course, like as mom in the very beginning when it started happening, I was horrified because I opened the door and I just, you know, would see him on the bed and I just, you know, I wasn't expecting it because he was just so delayed with everything, even puberty. Um, but I wish like, you know, I would have had this information to be more prepared myself. Um, question for you too. I know we're talking about males, but um, do you also um, teach or have clients that are females? So I've worked with women on more sociosexual skills. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I would say, it, given the nature of this teaching, it makes it, I think, more comfortable oftentimes for the client and or their parents mm -hmm. if the person delivering is of the same gender mm -hmm. um i think uh in empowered history it was predominantly our women providers who are working with uh our mm -hmm. uh, women and girl clients um currently as i am the only provider at empowered uh, all of our clients currently are yeah. guys um just Got to get, got to get more staff in it. <laughs> how, how do you get parents passed? Cause you know, it's almost weird that I don't know why it's like as mom and it, it, it was like, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a sexual person and I'm very outgoing 
and liberal and but when it's your kid it's you know I I don't want to use the word embarrassed I'm not sure what the word is but you know it, it took me a bit to get past that you know like the fact that okay I'm mom but I just have to I have to you know go with this and you know assume this role um, how how do you um, communicate with parents to kind of get over themselves like to make sure they they can deal with the situation yeah no I love that um, that's a great question so there's not going to be like a perfect way to eat this Reese's but I do think that like if we uh, if we look at comfort levels one of the things that I like to do, um, I take a comfort level assessment for clinicians that is very easily readable. Anybody could understand it. And I use that with parents. And it's not something that I can use as like a standardized assessment, but I consider it very socially valid and important is to right. figure out, you know, like what are the parents comfortable addressing? Um, right. How would they address those things? Um, and we go through that and, you know, if there's anything that makes them uncomfortable, they can let me know right there and I can help fill, fill in gaps with knowledge where, where necessary. The other thing too is um, like if I have uh, a parent who's coming to me and, you know, my kid is transgender and I don't know what mm -hmm. to do about this. And that's yeah. a huge thing on the autism spectrum. Uh, seven six. times. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Seven times yeah. more likely than their neurotypical peers to be trans yeah. or gender nonconforming. Um, and 55 to 70% of autistic adults identify as LGBTQIA+. Mm -hmm. exactly. um, so if we look at all of these kinds of elements, like we need to be competent in those areas too, as practitioners. But when, we, when I have parents who are coming in and, and that's what their kids are facing, I'm like, let's connect you. You know, there's, there are reasons that other types of therapists have what's called collaborative therapy, right? Um, <laughs> collaborative therapy connects the clients with their community and helps them have a system. So like, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> and so I'm like, I reach out and, and, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, so your kid uh, is identifying as transgender. Let's find a, a you know, transgender parents support group for you. Um, let's see if we can connect you with other parents who are having uh, similar concerns. Let's see if we can help you understand a bit from this perspective. Here's like Magenta, which is a book um, written entirely from uh, trans teen perspectives. Yeah. Um, so if I can give them like that side information uh, that can help them hear from a population's voice and connect them with people who are going through similar concerns. I think that that's very helpful. Um, I don't know of any like good parent groups for solo sex specifically, although maybe I should just start one. You should. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I talk about it a lot to parents and it's me and dads and me and moms talking about it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so you should. Um, one of my more requested things. Um, so I do a parent training called the talk. Um, and it's all about how to talk to your kids about sex and sexuality without sounding like a boomer. And <laughs> like, that's a big thing, right? Um, we want to, we want to be relatable and for them to come to us and to yeah. want to. And I want to just point out, Jen, that you said something earlier that I've been holding very close to my heart. And that's that your neurotypical son comes to you and asks questions sometimes more than you even expect. That means he feels safe with you. And that's really awesome. So kudos. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how I feel like nervous that my child with autism, but my, my other kid and like very specific questions. And like, I feel really comfortable talking to him about it. Um, 
So yeah, it's been good. One other topic, it's, it, I feel like it's relatable um, that I think most of my friends um, go through with their um, kids on the spectrum from a really young age. And of course it's okay and cute when they're little, but I don't want to like say it's a bad thing even when they're older, but um, they, they love to get naked and they don't mind like just cruising around the house like totally naked even people are around and it's just always every kid I know does that like an adult that I know does that um and so I just was wondering if that's something that you have like heard of and experienced as well and um you know is there what would your suggestion be like to address that you know obviously I don't really care like we're just the ones around but you know if we have people over and my cunts you know my son who is a man now runs downstairs totally naked like you know can be a little bit awkward <laughs> yeah. well it's a little bit awkward no um that is one of the more common things that mm -hmm. um that we address and i would uh most of the time in my plans i call it like nudity in public area of the home and then mm -hmm. i abbreviated into NEPA, <laughs> but because it's not quite public nudity, right? It's like nudity in public areas of your own home. Um, and so then I look at like, okay, well, what did I do when I got my first place? <laughs> naked day, like yeah. <laughs> legit. I was like, no one's here. I can be yeah. naked. So that means that there's really nothing wrong with it in certain contexts um so we have to come at it from a very realistic standpoint of not saying you know this is wrong no one does this because that's a lie mm -hmm. um but coming in from a standpoint of like you know if other people can see or hear it's public um these are your private right. parts other people should not see or hear your private parts and that's like the way that I frame everything. Um, so, you know, the only time that you should have somebody who can see your private parts is if you consent and they consent. And my learners have already learned consent before I bring that part in. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I don't just bank on the idea that they might know what consent means. Um, but uh, coming in and, and really um, having a, a framework that can be flexible and applied in different ways. You know, if they can see or hear that, that can be used here, that can be used here this time, that time. Um, and so for instance, like right now I have a young man comes out of the, the bathroom um, nude and his family has been instructing him to go down the hall to his room if he wants to do something in there, or uh -huh. he can go back into the bathroom. He's not coming out of that hall. So like, wh where are you going? And so he goes back into the bathroom, he pulls his pants up and then he can right. do whatever he wants or he goes into his room and he shuts the door. Uh, so just kind of starting to get him more onto that, uh, that idea that like, hey, you know, we're here, we can see or we can hear. Yeah. No. And this I is like another non-vocal client. So, you know, we're signing uh, that we can see, we can hear, you need to go somewhere else. Um, the same is true of like in the bathroom, he was making loud noises um, and trying to stimulate. Um, and it was like, hey, we can hear you're making it public. If you're going to make it public, then you can't do that. You can do that if you can keep it private. Mm -hmm. So like just really trying to work with, no, with so our clients great. on that. And I like that because like we've been doing exactly what you're saying, the, whole, the bathroom 
um, upstairs where my kids, they all both have their own rooms, but yeah, there's the hallway, there's the bathroom, my son's um, bedroom's right next door, but same thing. And I like that there's an option that, if, you know, obviously your bedroom, but we have said like, okay, or like, cause he loves to take baths. Yes, and the bath is fine too, but I like that there's kind of like a leeway, you know, where he feels, yeah. I guess, some flexibility, you know. Yeah, you got to give people options where you can. You know, mm -hmm. I, I say uh, one is a command, two is an ultimatum, three is choice. Uh, sometimes you can't give three, so you give two, mm -hmm. but ideally, I always shoot for three. Yeah. My, the last question, and as usual, I feel like we could talk for hours and we'll have to do this again. <laughs> but my last question would be, um, you know, Jen and I are happy to talk about this topic, which is why we're talking with you. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of parents that are not. Um, and as a practitioner, I know myself, I've been in situations just like you talked about with the um, sort of forced compliance or extinction. And I've seen that in lots of various forms. I can think of a young man who clearly came out as bi and he got into Stanford and his parents said, if you do that, we won't pay for your college. Mm -hmm. right? And he called me and said, help, what do I do? You, you know, you used to work with me and I trust you and I don't know what to do. Right. Another family I worked with, um, it was clear the young man um, was sexually stimulated by young girls feet and um, attempts to extinguish that were only causing more and more aggressive and challenging behavior in this young man. And so as a practitioner, we cannot, you know, we can influence families as much as we think, you know, as much as a family would like to be influenced, but share that. I mean, I must, it's likely families that are coming to you want your help, but I'm sure you've had families that say, help us make this stop. Mm -hmm. um I would say that's a big one. <laughs> no, no, uh, I'm I'm so with you. And honestly, I just finished a, a foot intervention, uh, um, yep. and and it worked out really well because that family was really cool. I taught their son to ask for consent. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, most like, families won't. Right. Allow uh, you to even go there. Yeah. I was like, you know, at, at least he's now he's interacting with somebody. Even yeah. if they say no, it's a lot better than just grabbing someone's feet. That's right. Um, but. Uh, I think that um, really when we're looking at all of this, we have to consider that no matter, uh, no matter what the behavior is that people are trying to extinguish or we're, we're trying to say is not good to have in this moment, we need to look at, is it because it makes us uncomfortable or is it because it's preventing this person from succeeding? Um, because a lot of the things that we might think it's going to prevent them from succeeding. It's only because it's making us uncomfortable and we're not giving them chances. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I uh, had a, a young man who came to me and um, his parents blamed his, his being gay on his autism. Um, they they wow. didn't think that he was really gay. They thought that if he understood social concepts, he'd understand that he was straight. I heard that a lot um, too. Mm -hmm. and, and that's simply not true. Like you either... <laughs> You, you eat what you like. Um, like, I'm just, <laughs> like he's, he's not going for this because he thinks that like 
this is cool or is going to make him popular. It's not because he's misreading a social signal. Like he either likes guys or he does not. Mm -hmm. I don't understand here. Um, and so in like that conversation was, you know, you need to work with his autism until he is straight. And I was like, that's weird. Um, that's, <laughs> that's not something that's in any of our literature. Right. Um, what you're describing sounds to me a lot like conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and after working with that family as long as I could, I eventually did have to refer them out. Um, they needed to move away from ABA because there was no ABA provider in this area that was going to help them more than I already had in this regard. Mm -hmm. So I moved them over to uh, marriage and family therapy as a, as a referral, but the family didn't opt for it. They actually pulled mm -hmm. out of all services and put the son into conversion therapy. Wow. Um, and, you know, that's something where I... I felt horrible for this client, but also I had to recognize like at the end of the day, the state's going to protect the parents' right. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Exactly. I will say though, almost every family that has come our way has been really cool, like really, really cool understanding families. Um, we've done interventions related to gender. We've done interventions related to, uh, to queer identities. Um, and it's not intervening on the client. Mm -hmm. it's the family comes they say like we don't know what to do yeah. and we say okay we're going to intervene on the family like as a whole we're going to build up this individual and we're going to teach you all how to reinforce this awesome person that they're becoming um, and that's a big part of what we try and do at Empowered. Nicholas that is so awesome so when we do this when we post this podcast we'll be sure to add some links to some of the information that you've shared so um, other people can benefit from the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Awesome. That was amazing. Everyone have a great rest of your day and please check out Nicholas's website.